We have an excellent podcast suggestion for you this week that comes from our friend Kelly Jennings. With her background in law enforcement, she brings a needed perspective to true crime cases. Her show is called Unspeakable and is one you can find on your favorite podcasting app with a new episode every Wednesday. Here's a little about the show from Kelly herself. Welcome to Unspeakable, a true crime podcast where I tell stories of real crimes with real victims, whose cases are so shocking that many are left wondering, how is this even real? I use my experiences in law enforcement, corrections, and combined with my years as a criminal justice educator, dig deep into complex cases of evil acts, some so evil, many feel they are unspeakable. Unspeakable, a true crime podcast by Kelly Jennings can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. But I have to warn you, if you're easily offended, then I'm not your girl. Listening discretion is advised. This week, we want to tell you again about McAvoy Ranch, because now we've gotten to try their products in some delicious recipes. McAvoy Ranch creates extra virgin olive oil that's the world's best, and it comes from their Northern California ranch. The company is female-founded and female-led by their president, Samantha Dorsey. Olive oil itself has so many health benefits as an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant, but McAvoy Ranch also makes olive oil delicious. And since I'm trying to eat healthier but still love my sweets, I tried their organic blood orange olive oil in place of butter in my sugar cookies. Olive oil is a great substitute for butter in a lot of baking because it contains healthier fats than butter. Olive oil is also a great swap for vegetable oil because it maintains its healthy benefits throughout the cooking process. If you'd like to experience the healthy and tasty benefits for yourself, visit www.macavoyranch.com. That's M-C-E-V-O-Y-R-A-N-C-H.com and enter promo code COFFEE15 to receive 15% off your order. You will be so happy that you did. They are a company with products worth celebrating. The life of a first responder's spouse comes with snares that most don't realize. It comes with a fear every time your spouse leaves for work, that they will face dangers that you can't even begin to fathom. You pray for their safety. It comes with being alone or the sole parent for 24 hours at a time that never fails to fall on the days you need them the most with power outages, flat tires, birthday parties, and anniversaries. It comes with them continually worrying about the worst-case scenario, even when tiny accidents happen, because, well, they've seen the worst more than once. It comes with aches and pains from years of weight from the physical tools of the trade, and heavy hearts paired with vivid memories of what they've seen the invisible yet ever-present mental toll that also comes as part of the job. I know because I've seen and felt it firsthand as a wife of a firefighter, and I know I'm not alone. Despite all of the tolls we know, in our case this week, it wasn't the dangers of the firefighter job that led to disaster. 
In fact, the man at the center of our case had been retired for several years from the Dallas Fire Department. The dangers this man faced are still unknown, but his friends and family are nonetheless dedicated to finding out the answers to exactly that question. This is the case of Michael Papaw Chambers. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Allison, I bet this case hit really close to home for you. It did. There were so many details that I wish I could connect with. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's a retired firefighter. So was my husband. You know, and I'm looking at pictures and I, I saw one picture and he, he's still wearing this navy blue t-shirt with the firefighter logo yeah. from their department on the chest and the blue pants and the baseball cap. And that's like Rodney's standard outfit <laughs> most days still too. So, yeah, I mean, there were just so many even tiny details that I connected mm-hmm. Plus, in our case this week, I had to throw in that Michael Chambers' nickname is Papaw because, you know, Rodney and I, just a couple years ago, became grandparents. And it's, there's nothing like it. And I just thought it was so heartwarming and sweet that that was his nickname was Papaw. So I had to, had to put it in there. What do your babies call Rodney? They call him Pawpaw. Oh, so close. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm Nanu, which was supposed to be, I know, it was supposed to be Nani. That's what we said we were going to be. But uh, the first granddaughter, she said Nanu, and so it stuck. So, so yeah, I'm (laughs) Nanu. (laughs) So, by the time our case takes place on March 10th, 2017, 70-year-old Michael Chambers had nine grandkids and six great-grandkids who all called him Papaw. And in fact, obviously, there were so many who called him Papaw that even the adults who knew him had taken to calling him the same thing. And I mean, that makes sense because anytime the grandkids are around, I call Rodney Papaw and he calls Mm -hmm. me Nanu. You know, so he'll say, oh, what's Nanu doing over there in the kitchen? So, (laughs) yeah. Um, So he became Papaw to pretty much everyone. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in in talking about him. So I want to kind of step back and give you some 
background information. Okay. Michael Glenn Chambers had grown up in a small town in Texas with a population of less than 2,000 mm. called Italy. Now, don't be fooled because it looks like it's Italy. Texas, yeah, it does. <laughs> but I verified that it is pronounced Italy. Well, that's like us saying Versailles. Yeah, Versailles. Versailles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was born on November 27th, 1946, and Michael Chambers graduated from Italy High School in 1965. And Maggie, even when he was younger, he was extremely active and involved in high school. He was in the FFA, and he played both football and basketball. Hmm. So a very busy young man. Yes, he's busy all year long. Mike had married his high school sweetheart, and they had two daughters, Sherry and Susie. So and Sherry and Susie had big families of their own then if he has nine grandkids. Well, we're going to get some, uh, two more kids oh, okay. here, in, here in a few years. Um, but yeah, with his first wife, he had two daughters, Sherry and Susie. And it was during this time that he was beginning his career as a firefighter in Dallas. It was a job he began in 1972. So just a few years after graduating mm -hmm. from high school. He was known on the job for not backing down no matter the situation, so not showing fear, for always being present, for his kindness to everyone he interacted with, and for his cooking skills at the station, Maggie. Mm. Particularly his chicken enchiladas, which apparently no. everybody went nuts over. I love a good chicken enchilada. <laughs> and at my job, there is a lady that I work with. She lives in El Paso, I'm pretty sure. Uh-huh. And I'm pretty positive she is a first-generation born American. I think she told me that, but I could be wrong. Um, but her family is from Mexico, and she gave me their chicken enchilada recipe <gasps> with the green sauce. I've not tried it yet because oh. everything that's spicy gives me heartburn. But, like, thinking about it makes my mouth water. Mm. I can't wait to You're going to have to invite us over when you make yes. it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he, everybody loved him and his cooking. And he was just, he seemed like the kind of guy who... Everybody was just drawn to because he had a quick smile and just an easy nature to him. In nearly every interview with someone who knew Michael Chambers, they said something about how giving he was and that he would help anyone and everyone at any time who needed it. I mean, he kind of does sound like Rodney. Maybe that's just like quali quality of, of a firefighter because I feel there like Rodney go. is so giving and would help people anytime they needed it. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael was just a kind soul. Um, unfortunately, that easiness, I'm guessing, didn't carry over necessarily into his home life. I didn't read any reason why his first marriage didn't work, but it didn't last. Mm. But Mike was able to find love again when he was 33 with his second wife. She was about 10 years younger than him. Okay, so a little and, bit of a difference, but not bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But her name was Rebecca Erickson and, of course, soon became Rebecca Chambers. But she went by Becca 
for short. And obviously, he's coming into the marriage with two daughters of his own. But Mike and Becca went on to adopt two sons of their own, John, and then four years later, Justin. Okay, so that's a big family. I love it. Yeah. By accounts from all who knew the couple, they were happy. And most people also noted that Mike would dote on Becca. (laughs) Like making her breakfast, making her dinner, opening the garage door when she was on her way home from work. So he could be there waiting to help carry in her work things. She was a home health nurse um, or carrying groceries or whatever he needed to do to help out. Now, I didn't read if those actions were ones that he did throughout the entirety of the marriage or if those... Mm -hmm just kind of happened after he retired from the fire department in 2008. But even if it was after retirement, that's still a good nine years where that had been their routine. It's sweet. Mm -hmm. Even more than his love and devotion in the role of husband, that same level of love and joy poured out of him in his other roles as father, grandfather, and then later great-grandfather. So even though his knees were bad from so many years on the job, he was the first to still get down on the ground with the grandkids and great-grandkids and to let them climb on his back to pretend like he's a horse just to be their personal jungle gym. Oh, he sounds like a great grandpa. I know. Yeah, I can just picture him now that I know what he looks like, you know, down on the ground and just letting them crawl all over him. Mm -hmm. In his spare time, when Mike wasn't pampering his family, he was splitting firewood on his property, performing in his gospel band called the Joint Heirs Quartet at nursing homes and other area locations. Uh, working alongside his son-in-law, performing some of his deacon duties at church, or doing something related to his love for classic cars. So still super busy. Yes. Yes, very much so. So from what I read, Mike would find a car that needed to be fixed up. He would work on it. He would rebuild it. He would show it. He would win trophies because he had uh, rebuilt it so well. And then he would just trade for a new one to start working on. (laughs) And he had even joined a local car club, the Texas Most Wanted Car Club. So he had a lot of interests and, you know, he made friends easily Mm -hmm. wherever he went. So he had a wide circle of people who loved him. In the days and weeks leading up to March 10th, 2017, everything seemed normal to those who knew the couple. Yeah, I'm like sitting here trying to figure out what could be wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know. And who who would do something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the Vanished podcast, host Marissa Jones interviewed one of Mike's granddaughters who said that just a couple of weeks before her grandfather went missing, he and Becca had come to visit her and it had been just before nap time. So she was reading her son. So Mike's great grandson, a story. And she remembers Mike and Becca sitting there just cackling at the silly voices that she was making while she was (laughs) reading. I'm one of those voice people too. That's why the grandkids love when I read a book. 
But she said there didn't seem to be anything amiss. Even in the days leading up to his disappearance, Mike was working on a car. He had been looking forward to attending a grandson's soccer game on the 11th. However, by the evening of March 10th, a missing persons report had been filed for Michael Chambers, and no one seemed to have any clue as to where he might be. Hmm. According to Becca, the morning of the 10th, she had spoken with her husband, Mike, before heading into work. She reports that he had mentioned something about working on a car and perhaps splitting some firewood on the property. Those were kind of, I guess, his plans for the day. These are the yeah, things very he wants normal to get done. Mike mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Mike and Becca actually lived on a tract of land in Quinlan, Texas, of around 10 acres. That's quite a bit of, yeah. of land. And even though Quinlan is about an hour drive from Dallas, it's still considered to be within the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area. Wow. I know. That's a large metropolitan area. Though, of course, Quinlan is rural and it's actually located near Lake Tawakany, which covers around 37,000 acres of land. Yeah. So it was kind of a place Quinlan was close enough to a larger city where there could be things Mm -hmm. to do, but still rural, quiet and quaint. And it sounds like a pretty fun outdoors area. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah, there's lots of fishing and water sports and things like that that happen on the lake. After leaving for work, Becca had called Mike around 8 a.m. to ask that he run to Walmart. So there was a Walmart in Quinlan to pick her up some mascara. According to an investigation discovery report, Becca then next tried to text and call Mike around 5.50 p.m. to say that she was heading home from work. And I got the impression that that was kind of the routine that Mm -hmm. she would call on her way home. That's how he knew to have the garage door open and kind of be waiting to help carry things in or whatever. However, she said that call went straight to voicemail. When she arrived home at around 6.15, the garage door wasn't opened for her as it normally was. Okay, and so immediately she's like, something's different. Exactly, yeah. With She's used to seeing Mike's smiling face greeting her and helping her carry things inside. And instead, she gets home to a closed, locked, and dark home. And Mike's was- truck was parked in the driveway. Okay, that was going to be my question. Was his vehicle gone? But no. No, it's right there. So, like you said, immediately she knew something was wrong. She said that she walked through the house calling for Mike, but he didn't respond. And she spotted the new mascara in the home. So that told her that he had gone out and been home at least once if he did go out again. And so she's thinking, well... Maybe he stepped out with somebody or or somebody had called and they needed help because remember he's a helper, right? So if somebody said, Hey, I need, I need your help. He would have gone. So next Becca said she called several people who might know where Mike would be. According to the sources that I read, Mike was a creature of habit and routine. So he was 
most often with just a handful of people because if if he were somewhere else or with someone different, he would have let Becca know or would have left a note about where he would be. And she didn't report any notes that had been left behind. So, yeah, she started making phone calls. She made a call to John. Remember, that's one of their sons. The kids, yeah. Mm -hmm, Because he and Mike would frequently have lunch together. But he hadn't seen or heard from his dad all day. Next, she called daughter Susie because Mike sometimes helped Susie's husband, David, with floor restoration work. Mm -hmm. But Susie hadn't seen her dad either. Becca then called someone from the car club. Still no luck locating Mike. It was then, accounts say, that Becca went to a neighbor's house. The neighbor was actually retired law enforcement to ask if she could borrow their four-wheeler because she recalled that Mike mentioned something about firewood. Mm. And so she wanted to ride around their property just in case he'd had an accident. Because remember, they live on 10 acres. Right, because I'm picturing, you know, we have one of those pear trees or whatever Mm -hmm. that the invasive ones that somebody Mm -hmm. planted in their house and it split last year like in half and then with the wind and rain we had a few days ago another portion of it split off and so like when he's cutting firewood i'm like picturing anthony just you know in my backyard and i can see him from the window cutting up firewood but i forget they're on a huge piece of property they are yes and heavily wooded so Yeah, she asks if she can borrow this four-wheeler to kind of ride around and see if she can locate Mike. Mm -hmm. After searching much of the property with the help from the neighbors, they actually came back home because they didn't see Mike or a sign of him anywhere. And now is when Becca decided to check the workshop, like the garage Uh where Mike would work on his classic cars. So she said the door was locked. So she unlocked the door and that's when she saw something. Oh God. She saw Mike's wallet, his keys and the blue baseball cap that he always wore lying in the place where he always laid them when he was working on the cars. So he had clearly been there. He Mm -hmm. just wasn't there now. She also saw something on the ground that she pointed out to the others, to the neighbors who were over there with her, as potentially being blood or transmission fluid, which is also red in color. So she says something like, is that blood or is that transmission fluid? Was it a lot? Well, the amount of fluid that was there, it was... More than there would be if it was blood from, like, a nick or a small cut. But it wasn't Mm. egregious or anything that looked like a fatal amount. Okay. So it's, like, somewhere in between. Okay. They did soon determine that it was actually blood. Mm. There was also... In this garage workshop, a wooden dowel rod 
with blood on it, oh. including a bloody hand. Okay, we need to be calling nine one one now. And they did. Yeah, it was around six fifty five p.m. that law enforcement, the Hunt County Sheriff's Office, was called to the scene. And when was the last time she had spoke with him when she was leaving work? Yeah. So she, I know. So any time really in between there, we know that she tried to call him sometime around five something and he didn't mm-hmm. answer. It went straight to voicemail. And so mm-hmm. I guess they've been looking for close to an hour before law enforcement gets called. Okay. Hearing about Becca's description of the day, law enforcement decided to request video footage from Walmart's security cameras. Good. Right? Because we know she said, I need something from there, and it's in the home. And sure enough, there was Mike making the purchase and exiting the Quinlan Walmart around 11.15 a.m. And the video showed no one was following him. No one looked suspicious in the store. Other cameras at Walmart showed him getting into his vehicle and leaving the parking lot again. Nobody followed him? Nope. Nobody's following him. Nobody seems suspicious. We obviously, like I said, know that he made it home from that trip because of the mascara and the other Mm -hmm. purchased items that were found in the couple's home. They also found the receipt in the trash can. So we know he at least made it home from that. In questioning neighbors, law enforcement were also able to determine that a close neighbor had arrived home from work on the 10th around 3 p.m. and had proceeded to do yard work outside for some time afterward without seeing or hearing anything suspicious. And so that led police to believe that whatever had happened to Michael Chambers had happened sometime between noon and 3 p.m. Okay, and I have a question. Mm-hmm. So this car workshop place that he has, yes. that's on their property? Like he could it walk is. there? Yes. Okay. Interesting. So... Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that explains why he didn't pick up when she called, because if we're following their timeline, something had already happened to him. Right. Sometime between noon and three is what they're saying. But law enforcement soon discovered some very odd things about the crime scene. When Mike worked in this multi-car workshop, he almost always left one of the doors up. And I know Rodney does this. I don't know if Anthony does, if he's in the garage, either to let fumes out or whatever he's doing, or at least to get some airflow in the garage. So you want to know one thing that happened to me? Okay, this is totally like... Tell me you grew up poor without actually saying you were poor. Okay. So we did not have a garage at my house. Like I had to walk down a hill, like behind my grandparents' house to where we parked cars. Like we couldn't even pull mm-hmm. a cart to my house until we did like some lands, like uh, excavating when I was uh-huh. in high school. So when we moved to Frankfurt, we had a garage there. And that's the first time I ever had a garage that, you know, I parked a car in Uh and I was like, it was in winter. And I was like, I'm going to go ahead and start my car because it's cold. And that way when I leave for work, it'll be warm when I get in there. I did not 
realized I needed to like crack the garage door open. Oh no, Maggie. And so when I went in there, I was like, because <coughs> there's so much carbon, carbon monoxide. monoxide. I was like, not me trying to like poison myself Gosh. accidentally. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Lesson learned. <laughs> so, you know, he normally leaves the door open, but when Becca arrives home, the garage doors were all closed. Mm-hmm. But there were other details about the workshop that didn't add up for investigators. While there was the blood and the bloodied wooden dowel, there were yeah. no other signs of struggle, either in the house nor in the workshop. Nothing was out of place. Which is weird because you would think if he's, someone's obviously hit him, presumably mm-hmm. in the head with this wooden rod. Mm-hmm. So you would think there would have been some kind of struggle unless yeah. he was surprised or it was somebody he knew maybe. Right. But even then. So initially law enforcement considered well, maybe Mike was the victim of a robbery. Yeah, his wallet's there. Well, so I didn't read most of the sources I read said there was not cash in Mike's wallet, but one source even said that, that there was. But even that, if there was no cash, I'm sure he had expensive tools in his workshop. He did. Yeah. So they ended up discovering that, well, right inside the console of his truck, which is parked right outside in the driveway, there was a $1,000 wow. in the console that was still there. And like you said... All of these expensive tools, classic cars mm-hmm. in this workshop, none of which were touched. And I mean, surely if somebody wanted to rob Mike, they could have profited much more from those items than any small amount that he had in his wallet yeah. if he, you know, had any in his wallet. So robbery doesn't seem to be the motivation in whatever happened to Michael Chambers. As some detectives were going over the scene, others were going into town to check out surveillance footage from other area stores to see if, you know, maybe Mike made more stops after Mm -hmm. Walmart. Can we narrow down this window even more? However, Mike wasn't seen on any other store footage. Mm -hmm. So those detectives who were at the house made even more bizarre discoveries in the meantime along with mike himself his cell phone was missing which we know went straight to voicemail Mm -hmm. potentially a tarp from the garage Mm -hmm. we'll talk more about that later as was his driver's license taken from his wallet that's random Yeah, I don't know about you, Maggie, but I almost never take my license out of my wallet. In fact, other than being places where I have to show my license to prove my identity, like if I go to a new doctor or something like that, I don't know if I ever take my driver's license out. Yeah, same. Police were also dumbfounded by that detail, but not as much as the details surrounding the blood found in the workshop. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So the blood that was found, Maggie, didn't look like normal blood that you would happen upon at a crime scene. Okay, interesting. Nor did it even look like blood you'd find if you accidentally cut yourself or something like that. So there are several reasons why. So first let me explain them to you. And then I'm going to show you an image. And Sleuth Hounds, we will post this on social media. So first is that the blood was bright red. I didn't know this until I started doing some research, but bright red blood is arterial or oxygenated blood, while venous blood is darker red. So, like, what they draw when they draw your blood is darker. Yeah. God, nasty. Versus arterial blood, which is oxygenated Arterial bleeds are caused most commonly by penetrating injuries, though, which are like wounds with which the blood comes out in spurts because it's coming out as your heart is beating and pulsing, right? So keep in mind what that would look like if you get a wound where it's spurting when my heart beats, spurt, Mm -hmm. spurt, spurt. Look at the image from the workshop blood. No, this looks like drips. Yeah. So for it to be arterial, generally speaking, those come like in those finer, like a mist. Mm-hmm. And that's not what you see. Yeah, the mm-hmm. blood in this picture definitely doesn't look like blood that was spurting out. But it mm-hmm. is bright red. Yeah. So in my mind, the only thing that could be bright red but not spurting would be something like a nosebleed. Okay, and I am prone to nosebleeds. Oh, like are I'm you always... good? Be, I mean, not good. Yeah. G- not good, Maggie, but you can answer this. Because, you know, I was thinking it could be from a nosebleed, but I, I've only ever had one nosebleed in my life. Oh, wow. And I noticed or felt something on my lip and kind of wiped it away to see blood before it got on my clothes. I feel like when you get nosebleeds, you would probably, I don't know, notice it before it would become a big pool on the ground. So Sleuth Hounds, in this picture that you'll see, there's like one area where blood is kind of pooled. Though it's not very large. I would be interested to know. And then the rest is a Yeah, like the size of that. Mm-hmm. Like is With that. With a ruler. 
what is that? Yeah, like six inches, mm-hmm. four inches. Right. Because I have had nosebleeds. Like, I mean, mine are so bad that even when I was small, I have to put cold Vaseline inside of my nostrils. Uh-huh. Because that keeps my nose moisturized. Uh-huh. But apparently, like, I guess, like, the vessels or whatever are close to the surface in my nose. And they were like that with my brothers, too. So we're just really prone to nosebleeds. But I'm wondering if a couple things. One, because, like, if I blow my nose and it's dry, mm-hmm. it will come out like that big spurt. Oh, like it, so it does kind of, kind of gush. Explodes. Okay. Yeah. And then I'll drip, like, I'm holding it to get to the bathroom and it'll drip, mm-hmm. like, those drops. Or I wonder if they even maybe, you're they're dripping and then where that bigger spot is, that's, like, they coughed up a blood clot. Or blew out a blood clot. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let me tell you some other unexplainable details about the blood. So if you look closely, then you will see exactly kind of what you were already noticing. That there's no splatter with the droplets. There's no spray, Mm -hmm. like you were mentioning. If a six-foot, two-inch mic is standing and his nose is bleeding, then I feel like those drops aren't going to land in perfect circles. Like gravity yeah, is going to hit with crawling. force. Maybe. Yeah, because otherwise I feel like it would hit with force and spread. Mm. Right? Yeah. This is almost kind of like whatever they hit him in the head with, they're holding it and it's close to the ground and it's dripping off just a couple inches from the ground. Oh, so maybe it's dripping from if he's hit, whatever he's hit with. Yeah, maybe. Well, blood spatter experts were later brought in and they would say that the blood appeared as though, because it's in these, it's bright red and it's in these perfectly round droplets It would appear as though the blood had some sort of anticoagulant in it, like a blood blood thinner. Mm -hmm. But Mike had blood thinner. Nope, he had no prescription for blood thinners. Hmm. Additionally, the blood was found in this area of the workshop, leading toward the door, but it abruptly stopped just a couple feet before reaching the door. And it wasn't found outside. So maybe then he was wrapped up into something or picked up? We will talk about that. We will talk about that. First, let's say that this were a nosebleed or like something as innocent as that. If that were true, why? You know, because I'm thinking, okay, why might it have stopped? Well, maybe mm-hmm. you got something in it or you tilted your head back or you've done something that's keeping it away from the ground. Mm-hmm. But if it is something like a nosebleed, why wouldn't Mike have grabbed some of the shop rags for his nose? Yeah, because I'm sure they would have been close by or even like the t- his t-shirt. Mm-hmm. And even if he tilted his head back and that's why it abruptly stops... Why would he have walked outside of the garage instead of over to the shop sink to clean up? Oh, good point. I mean, why not go into the house? Yeah, and then I feel like if he did have a nosebleed and, like, he went to the house to clean up, 
they could find traces of his blood mm-hmm. in and the they sink. didn't i mean why wander off with your cell phone and just your driver's license from your wallet and then what about that bloody dowel rod yeah that is really peculiar all of that so hunt county sheriff meeks stated as reported in an investigation discovery article by katherine townsend quote my thoughts were that someone had hit him on the head with the dowel rod and had taken him end quote mm-hmm. so that's what he's thinking initially Instead of leading to answers, though, Maggie, tests would later come back to show that the blood on the ground, as well as the blood on the dowel rod, including the bloody handprint, belonged to Mike himself. Okay, hold on. So, the handprint is found on the wooden rod. Correct. And the wooden rod... That's Mike's bloody handprint on this wooden rod. Yes, which is just like leaning somewhere in the garage. Was there any other blood, like any other person's blood on there? Maybe he hit somebody with it after he was hit. Okay. Only his. Okay. So then I'm thinking, why grab the rod? Right. Obviously, you're bleeding from something ahead of time. Uh So that doesn't make much sense to me. Luckily, unlike some of the cases we cover, law enforcement were out in full force trying to find out what may have happened to the beloved Papa. They brought in helicopters to search the rest of the property, but they found no further clues. They brought in bloodhounds to search for Mike's scent. The hounds did trace his scent to a corner of the property that was near a culvert, but the trail ended there. So despite the oddity with the blood, some people are still wondering, could Mike have been abducted? Had he been brought to that corner of the property and then maybe placed in a car? And that's why the dog stopped. Yeah, but I mean, his scent will probably be all over that property. I mean, I would think so. Could he have accidentally injured himself in the workshop and then been, you know, confused and wandered off on his own? maybe but i just feel like with the weird things that are missing Mm -hmm. i don't know if that really makes sense either and with little else to go on since nobody else's blood was found there his blood isn't found elsewhere there are no strange tire marks he has no known enemies there's nothing that's out of place Law enforcement's next attempt at answers was to look at cell phone data since his phone was missing. So they're thinking maybe the last ping will show where he may be, or maybe he did make some phone calls. They found that the last ping to Mike's phone was around 5.55 p.m., which was around the time when Becca said that she called and texted Mike to let him know that she was on the way home from work. So even if, let's say my phone is dead and mm-hmm. you called my phone, it would still pick up a ping? 
I think, I don't think so. So somebody no. hit the FU button and send her to voicemail. And Potentially or couldn't answer hmm. or something. And then it's obviously turned off. Because when I hear it goes straight to voicemail, which is what mm-hmm. she said, right? That that to me is it does not even ring. Like your phone is dead or it's turned off. Right. And it doesn't even ring. Right. Because if I call my mom and she doesn't answer and she'll be like, hey, well, why didn't you call me? I'm like, I did, but it went to your voicemail. That's mm-hmm. different than going straight to voicemail mm-hmm. versus going to voicemail. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I also don't know if she texted first. And then she tried mm-hmm. to call, and so maybe the text pinged. Came through, and then the, the phone turned off. Right. The sheriff had actually later tried to call the phone, and obviously it, again, had gone straight to voicemail. And even those mm-hmm. details were confusing to family because they've stated that Mike always had his cell phone charged and on his person. And, you know, we're talking, I mean, if he charged it overnight, as we would assume he would, and something happens to him between noon and three, I wouldn't think his phone battery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why was the battery dead or it turned off? The last ping on his phone placed him near a bridge spanning the lake near his house. And it was a place that they'd already searched in their investigation because, again, it's near his house. However, investigators searched the area again, only to come up empty-handed. Are they, like, searching? So does this bridge go over the lake? Mm Mm-hmm. It's called Two Mile Bridge. I don't know if that means it's two miles long or what. So I wonder if they, like, looked in the water for his phone. I know that would um, be, you know, finding a needle in a haystack. Right. I'm pretty sure they did send divers, but I don't know how extensively or what gotcha. portion of it was searched. Obviously, rumors began swirling, as they often do when there are cases like this one with no clear or obvious answers. Mm-hmm. And some of those rumors pointed a little close to home. So, this seems like a perfect time to start talking about theories. Are we going to name... Okay, I'll just wait. I'll wait. Okay. I know some of them are already... One's going to be that he committed suicide. I already know that's going to be a theory. Yeah, Yeah, it is. So, we'll start with that one. So, theory number one is that Michael Chambers committed suicide. Okay. While some of Mike's family and friends have been the biggest and loudest opponents to this theory, law enforcement believe in the validity of this theory. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to say anything bad about law enforcement, but yes, because then you can just, case is closed. He committed suicide. Right. Law enforcement have even proposed that Mike had taken his driver's license so that his body could easily be identified after committing suicide. I read in several sources that Sheriff Meeks has stated that police discovered something in their investigation that could be a motive for Mike to commit suicide. 
Okay, but if we're supporting the suicide theory and not a homicide theory, then why can't we share what we have found? They said because it's still an open investigation. So they have never disclosed mm-hmm. what that something is. So I can't tell you because I don't know. We don't know. Law enforcement have also intimated that Mike had severe depression, though I have not heard this claim being corroborated by family nor by a medical professional. And I feel like his wife would at least know if he's taking I feel like there would be record. Mm -hmm. Their theory is that Mike rode a bike, and I'll tell you why here in a bit. Rode a bike to the bridge where his cell phone pinged that he then threw the bike in and then jumped over the bridge off of the bridge himself. Okay. I think a bicycle would be easier to find in this lake than a cell phone and his body. Yeah. Also, is it, is it common to drown oneself? Because, I mean, that's essentially what's going to happen, right? I mean, this bridge isn't up high enough that the impact would kill him. That would not be the choice I would make. No. Mm -mm. So, I don't, I wouldn't think that it's as common. There are, I don't want to be completely dismissive of this theory. There is a detail that does seem to support it. So when investigators were able to triangulate data from Mike's phone, they were able to see that Mike had traveled to this location almost eight miles from his home, moving around two to four miles per hour. Obviously, they argued that is much too slow for a car to travel if it were an abduction. Oh, so hence the bicycle theory. Hence they think, yes, that he had taken a bike and ridden it from his house to this bridge. But that would mean it would have taken almost three hours to get from his house to this bridge at that rate. And one, do they have a bicycle that's missing from their property? Did not get a clear answer on that. Some sources said yes, others said no. Also, I don't know, but I think when you make the decision to commit suicide, we've talked about this in some of the other theories where the person was like on the train tracks, remember that one? Mm-hmm. Um, why? I don't think you would take the long way of doing it. I think it would be like, you've decided and you're doing it. So why take three hours to get to the destination that you have chosen? That does seem odd. I also have some other problems with this theory. First is that I read that the bridge is less than 10 feet above the water. Yeah. So this is not a height at which a fall would kill you if you jumped. mm -hmm. Second is that in this entire two to three hours that it had taken him to travel from his home to the bridge, whether on bike or on foot, not a single person recalls passing him nor seeing him. Well, that's true, too. Hadn't thought of that. Third, Mike had bad knees from his firefighting days. I really don't see him cycling nor walking that long of a distance. I mean, it is plausible 
but eight miles? Yeah, and you would have to be in fairly good shape to bike that distance. I would think so. And then fourth, and most importantly, if law enforcement's whole theory was that Mike took his license so he could be easily identified by committing suicide, why would he then have thrown his bike in the water, making it harder to find him? Oh, yeah. Why would he not have just left it on the bridge and then they would have been like, oh. That's right. Exactly. Those two details don't go together in my mind. I know you're going to talk about it, but also the blood, which I'm sure we'll get there. But Mm -hmm. Right. Why that? We'll kind of get to that in theory, too. A private investigator, Philip Klein, who was later hired by Mike's daughter, Susie, also does not believe in the suicide theory, stating instead that maybe Mike's things had been thrown over the bridge there, and that's why the pings stop. Right, like if a phone is then introduced to water and it kind of yeah. fritzes out. That's interesting. Also, if this is a suicide, like you said, why all of the blood at home? Mm-hmm. And speaking of the blood, unfortunately, detectives in the case did send it off to get verification that it belonged to Michael Chambers, but they did not have coagulation testing done on it to Why? see if there were, I, I don't know. So by the time, even though Sheriff Meeks originally thought, you know, maybe he got hit over the head after that testing comes back and it's all proven to be Mike's blood, Per the Catherine Townsend article for Investigation Discovery, Sheriff Meek stated, quote, This was not an abduction, and it's not going to be a homicide. He left on his own, end quote. Hmm. And there are some in Mike's family who do say that the theory of suicide is possible, but daughter Susie disagrees completely feeling that foul play is the only feasible theory to her. I mean, I do think suicide is a possibility. I don't know how we tie the blood at home into that mm-hmm. unless like he attempted to do that at home and then that wasn't successful. And this is like his backup plan. Maybe I just feel like, I feel like it would take an awful lot to get to that point mm-hmm. with when your whole life kind of revolves around your grandkids. Yeah, I just, and my thing is, if we're so sure he left on his own, then why is this still an open investigation? Exactly. You obviously are not so too sure. Mm-hmm. Theory two is that Michael Chambers staged his own death yeah. so he could leave and start a new life. Okay. This theory is primarily based on three things. The first is a memory from Mike's son-in-law who recalls that one time when they were watching an investigation discovery show, (laughs) he was watching it with Mike, that somebody was committing pseudocide, which is faking one's own death, and that Mike had made a comment that it would be easy to disappear and make it look like an accident. Well, I'm glad he thinks it would be because I am not smart enough to do that. (laughs) I'd leave a hair trail 
because I yeah. lose so much hair. But to me, though, I mean, given the context, that comment doesn't seem off-putting. I feel like it would seem more bizarre yeah. if it were made, you know. Like just when you're watching Gilmore Girls. <laughs> right. Not when you're watching Investigation yeah. Discovery. Because I remember one time I was watching Unsolved Mysteries with my it was like on the TV at my aunt and uncle's house when we were all out there. Uh-huh. And my uncle, who is like, like, like a papaw, like papaw, mm-hmm. um, said, well, if I was going to kill somebody, I'd just dig an empty grave a couple feet deeper and hide a body in there. And like, it was like, if he had said that when we we're watching, you know, a sitcom, then I'd be like, right. okay, that's weird. Oh, right. But when you see it when you're watching Unsolved Mysteries, you're like, oh, okay. It's a yeah, good idea. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the second detail that leads some people to think he staged his own death was the blood. So some experts have argued that the only way for the droplets to have been as perfect as they were would be that if the blood had been in some sort of vial hmm. and then strategically and carefully placed, like dropped there. Okay, my thing with this, though. Firefighters mm-hmm. respond to a lot. They do. Of they respond accidents. to suicides Suic- and all yes. kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I would think he would know how to make it look believable. I agree. And he would know that detail is not believable. I would agree with that too. The third detail, though, is that his quote unquote bike ride to the bridge isn't the first time that he had been to the bridge that day. Cell phone analysis showed that he had gone to the two-mile bridge earlier that morning, that he had stopped just past the bridge, and that he had stayed there for about 10 or 15 minutes before continuing on and then coming back to that same spot that afternoon because his cell phone last pinged there. So there Did thing- he have to go over this bridge to go to Walmart or anything like that? I don't believe so. I don't believe Cause, so. Because I'm just thinking like my dad, when he, if there's no one coming and he goes over like a bridge, he'll stop and, see, you know, like lean out of his little window in his vehicle to see if he, what fish he sees swimming. So could it have mm, just been something like that, I wonder? Maybe. It could have been something like that. But of course, those who believe this theory, they're saying, oh, you know, was he thinking about or planning something? And that's why he went there first. And then he's coming back to actually carry it out. Right. And to argue this point, his family have said that, you know, even if there were elements to his life that he wasn't happy with, that he cared so deeply about his children, his grandkids, and his great-grandkids that he would have never done such a thing to just leave and start a new life. It's also their argument about the suicide. I mean, he had a grandson's soccer game the very next day. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're saying, okay, well, let's say he was going to run off and start a new life or whatever. If he's going to stage something and turn his phone off anyway, why not just leave it behind? Yeah. Yeah, why take it with you? Why take your driver's license? Just leave it all behind. Yeah. So that part doesn't really... I even think the staged blood doesn't even really fit the 
staging his own death. Like, why even do that? Like, you could have just left. Right, just disappear. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to get into the theories related to foul play. And there are three that I'm going to talk about. Theory three is an abduction. This theory is supported by the private investigator who was hired by the family. So in the Klein Files podcast, private investigator Philip Klein notes that he spoke with the blood spatter experts and that they identified the pattern in the blood as something that they call a dog walk pattern because it's going kind of back and forth. And Hmm. they proposed, he said, that the larger spot of blood could have been a blow, like you mentioned early on in the episode, to the head. And that Mike had then been picked up by two perpetrators. So think of him like kind of hanging upside down, right? Okay. So he's closer to the ground. You mentioned crawling earlier. Mm -hmm. So if one perpetrator were holding him by the feet and the other by the arms... And that the swinging kind of pattern is the body being carried out that may have produced that pattern. And it definitely would have taken two people to manhandle, again, six foot, two inch, 225 pound Michael Chambers. To explain the abrupt stop of the blood a couple of feet before the workshop door... Klein states that before he even had a chance to tell the blood spatter experts, they asked if a tarp or anything of the sort had been missing. Mm -hmm. And when Klein said that he confirmed that there was, so he was the source of that piece of information that I mentioned earlier. I didn't corroborate, I couldn't corroborate it in my other sources, but the private investigator hired by the family is the source who said that that there was also a tarp missing. Yes. So he said that there was, and then he said that these blood spatter experts indicated that it stopped likely because Mike had been placed on the tarp and then carried out of the workshop that way. Okay. Cause at first I was like, how are they, wouldn't there be like another larger spot if they laid him down and maybe rolled him onto it, but mm-hmm. they place him directly on the tarp and pick right. it up. But this is the middle of the day. Like does he it have is. neighbors? He does. But I guess most of them were at work because the one closest one doesn't get there. Oh, yeah. Until he got three. Home. Yeah. And then, because I'm thinking, you know, if Mike had hurt himself in the workshop versus foul play, why wouldn't he Mm -hmm. have, like, why would he have taken a bike, which is so much slower than his truck, to get help if this, if the blood is the result of an accident? Maybe he was just really, really confused. I guess he could have been. Whatever happened. I don't know. But then if that's the case, why does the blood stop? That's true. And, but why is there no struggle? That's what yeah, that, I'm sure that's what you're about to say. It was, yeah. It it doesn't answer, if this is an abduction, why there wasn't the sign of struggle. It doesn't answer and why. And did they, like, you're going the same where I'm going, like, or the same place. Because if they come in, right, mm-hmm. he's hurt. Somehow. Mm -hmm. And there would have had to have been more blood. Like he's hit in the Mm -hmm. head, let's say. And he touches the back of his head. And that's how he gets his own blood on his hand and picks up this rod 
to try to hit these men. Mm-hmm. He's going to probably be a little bit disoriented because he's mm-hmm. been hit in the head. Mm-hmm. So you would think things would be knocked over. Mm-hmm. There would be more blood elsewhere. Yep. Like it, yep. that just doesn't explain that. Right. And it also doesn't explain why Mike's phone data was triangulated to show travel to the bridge between two and four miles per hour. Because I would think if a vehicle is traveling that slow, it would definitely draw attention. Yeah, I mean, like, you wouldn't even have to touch your gas. If Anthony got behind that vehicle, he'd be going insane. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, people would remember. Right. And there's no recollection of it. Theory number four is Mike's son, Justin. Law enforcement heard rumors that there had recently been a falling out between Mike and the then 31-year-old Justin over money. Allegations say that Justin was always asking Mike for money and kind of guilt-tripping him into giving it to him. And in the past, Mike had always given in. However, not long before Mike went missing, he apparently had had enough. Townsend reported that son-in-law David said, quote, Mike had totally quit. He said, I'm done with this. It's time for him to take care of himself. From what I understand, he would call and get belligerent with Mike and make threats, end quote. And he's 31? mm Mm-hmm. So some people wondered whether those threats had then translated into physical violence. Because you mentioned, you know. Do we know know how young they were when they were adopted? uh, I think they were around four. Hmm. So still pretty young. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned earlier, you know, if he had been taken by surprise or somebody he knew or something Mm -hmm. like that. And, of course, that's what people who believe this theory think as well. But law enforcement looked into these allegations, and in an interview with Justin by law enforcement, he said that he would never hurt his father. You know, we say a lot of things in anger that we don't really mean. And he Mm -hmm. also gave the alibi of being at work on the day that his father disappeared, and that was something that law enforcement were able to verify. So, when we're talking about this, mm-hmm. and you may think I'm crazy, until the money thing came up, like, I hadn't thought of any of Mike's kids. Mm-hmm. But I did think of his wife. So, I'm oh. wondering if she's going to be a theory. So, yes. <laughs> she is going oh. to be the final theory. Uh, the final thing I'll say about Justin, though, is... Is that he, I know we talk all the time about how they're not admissible in court, but Justin was given and passed two separate polygraph exams um, in May of 2017. So police Mm -hmm. have kind of ruled him out. And the final theory that we're going to talk about is Mike's wife, Becca. I'm, I'm interested in this one. I will warn you that this is... The longest theory, because I do have a long list of reasons why she is the person suspected by a lot of people in this case. Okay, so my first thing I'm going to guess is that 
because she is a nurse, mm-hmm. we are able to explain these droplets of blood. Yes. So there are some people who think, okay, well, if it looks like it came from a vial, who might have access to a vial of blood? Mm-hmm. And of course, it was Mike's blood, but I mean, that could have been for a number of reasons. But the biggest reason related to her being a nurse, though, is that they argue that comment concerning whether the drops on the floor were blood or transmission fluid is bogus because as a nurse, I would think she would know the difference. Well, yeah, like if it was, you know, me or you and we were like, what is that? Right. Actually, I would not even know. I wouldn't even know what transmission fluid looked like. Why well, would just either. be able to make that comparison? Nor would my brain even really register the words transmission fluid. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. The second reason why some suspicion lands on Becca is that she has never publicly made a plea for Mike's safe mm-hmm. return. I'd be like, give me every newspaper, give me every news station. I'm going to talk to everybody. Yeah. You know, about which you know, people helping him differently. They do. Instead, per statements made by a car club friend of Mike's named Penny, who was interviewed on the True Crime Broads podcast, she said she has made many statements about things that Becca has said. Now, again, this is hearsay i don't have verification other than Mm -hmm. penny said it happened but she has stated on that podcast if you want to listen to the interview that becca had insisted that mike was never coming back and all of that from the first day that he was missing but is it like how's she saying it like is she sobbing and she's saying like He's never coming home. You know, I think that could change. It could. Tone does matter. Yes. Yeah. Penny has also stated, though, that when she was called to see if she knew where Mike was on that March day, that Becca had asked her to come over to the house because she, quote, needed someone on her side. End quote. But wouldn't all of his family be on her side? If I know. I That comment is weird to, to me. Home? Yeah, that mm-hmm. comment's weird to me. Probably the reason why individuals question her the most, Maggie, though, is because it came to light as a result of the investigation that she had carried on many affairs over the years. I'm sorry, you're cheating on the man that opens the garage door for you and helps carry yeah. your work stuff inside? Mm-hmm. And makes your breakfast and dinner? And buys you mascara? Yes. These were affairs that she initially denied, but later admitted to. Well, she admitted to one. The, the rest, I guess, are just allegations. And she admitted to that one when given a polygraph exam. During the polygraph exam, she said that she believed that Michael knew about the affair, but just had never brought it up to her. And okay, she said he that he loved her. Yeah. And she said that it ended five months before Mike went missing. That's what she said. Further, 
She didn't want to discuss Mike's case with the private investigator, which to me seems suspicious because... Yeah, a little sus. I, I know what you said is true, that everybody grieves and reacts differently. But to know that she didn't make a public plea, that she allegedly told Penny that Mike was never coming home before even days spent looking for him... Mm-hmm. And then to not want to work with anyone and everyone who might be able to bring him back, like the private investigator, that to me, it at least looks really bad. Right. Because even if maybe I'm just too emotionally distraught to make any type of public plea, I would still be like, here's my debit card. Here's Mm -hmm. access to my savings account. Here's all of my credit cards. Max them out to do whatever you need to find my husband. Well, we're about to get into some financials. Oh, God. Because just when you might think that things couldn't look any worse for Becca, they do. Just 10 days after Mike disappeared, Becca removed son Justin from the family phone plan and suspended Mike's phone service. Okay, so even if, okay, let's say Mike is abducted mm-hmm. or, you know, like we said, he's he hit his head, he's disoriented and he's mm-hmm. lost and then he figures out where he's at mm-hmm. and he can charge his phone. He, he wouldn't be able to ha- use would have it. no use for it because nope. he, I don't know. See, I would be paying for Anthony's phone until yep. the day I died. I would too. I would too. Yeah, because by suspending it, it means that any future turning on the phone, pinging a tower, cannot be tracked. Mm-mm. So she stated that financial hardship was the reason that she made that move. Nope. And if my dad went missing and my mom couldn't afford to pay for it, if he had a cell phone, and my mom couldn't afford to pay for it, I would pay for it. I mean, at daughter. least, at and least sure reduce it. Would have done that. Yeah, yeah, any of them. Reduce it down to a basic extra line. What is it, $10 a month? Yeah. Mm-mm. And I don't know what it was in 2017, but, I mean, don't keep the data on it. Like, just reduce it down, yeah. but keep it active. Mm-hmm. That was also the reason, financial hardship, that she gave for her next move, which was to file for a death certificate for Mike. On April 20th. And he went missing when? On March 10th. Yeah. No. Absolutely not. Mm Mm-mm. Nope. Yeah. She told the kids that the death certificate was only temporary. Because you have a temporary death certificate? Well, she said it was temporary because she said that she would have to at least file this temporary death certificate in order to sell or get rid of Mike's truck because she didn't want to continue to make the loan payments on it. So no. they, they had okay. like a monthly payment on the truck. Now I get that could be a financial burden. I don't know how yeah, much but truck payments are. Like my, my mom and dad though, literally did not have two pennies to rub together after my brother died mm-hmm. and made the last like however many of his truck payments 
just to be able to keep his truck because he loved it that much. Mm-hmm. So, no, again, no. Yeah. So she says she's filing this temporary death certificate so she can sell or get rid of his truck so she doesn't have to continue making the payments. I mean, were they in that much financial hardship? I don't know. I didn't read anything that stated that they were. Hmm. But I guess she's kind of saying here, if he's just missing... And I do know that several states are trying to pass legislation that will allow um, for some, I guess, financial aid in some of these cases. Because you've gone from like a two-income household to a single-income household. Yeah. Right? Because he's missing, so you're not going to be getting his retirement. But you still have your house payment, your vehicle payments. Okay, so maybe I jumped on Becca's case a little too soon because I hadn't thought about that his retirement would have probably stopped. So she probably did need the extra something. Um, yeah. But the death certificate would also allow her to sell Mike's classic cars, including the one that he had gifted to her to get money. And she did sell off all of those possessions and put their home up for sale as well. Now, again, okay. it could be financial like, like it could be hardship. too emotional. Yeah. It or, could you know, be too, it's emotional. too many memories. The problem is that you were onto something earlier. The certificate was not temporary and Mike was declared legally dead permanently, officially, on May 26th, 2017. A detail his children only found out about after the fact, and it allowed Becca to now receive payments from Mike's pension. I mean, we have cases that we have covered that span decades, Mm -hmm. and the people are still not declared dead. Right. This is like three months yeah yep yeah because this happens march 10th yeah and we're two two and a half months later yeah then there's becca's cell phone activity Per details outlined by the private investigator philip klein on the morning of mike's disappearance Becca made five work-related calls. Then she called her alleged lover. Remember the one that she said it had been over for Mm -hmm. five months? At 2.20 p.m. He called her back at 2.53 p.m. And again at 3.08 p.m. Remember, keep in mind that we think something happened to Mike between noon and three. Then, for no obvious reason, Becca's phone was turned off between 3.15 and 4.51. So there are no pings. Were we able to say, like, she was at work? No, there are no pings to verify her location. And she was like a home nurse. She was a home health nurse. Yep. And Mm -hmm. that information came from the private investigator. So he has released those details. So she's talking to an alleged lover. And then her phone turns off 
for an extended period of time. And then her cell phone isn't used again until that text and then attempted phone call telling Mike that she is on her way home from work. And that was well after five. Mm -hmm. The man who she was calling was brought in for additional questioning. And he, too, initially denied any affair or that any phone calls had taken place with Becca. He's basically like, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't talked to her until he was presented with the evidence to the contrary of the phone records showing that the calls took place. It was then that he finally admitted to a relationship, though he maintained that he had nothing to do with Michael's disappearance. And he did have an alibi for that day that they were able to verify. Like at like an all-day alibi, or is it one of those things that was like, I was at Allison's house, and then I drove home. That I don't know. You know, when there's that right. gap. Right. Also, I would be a horrible criminal. Yeah. Horrible. Because as soon as they were like, okay, well, we're going to give you a, a lie detector test, I'd be like, well, this is what I did. Right. <laughs> this is what happened. Just I'm so now. sorry. Right. Yeah. 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 Go ahead and take me in. Mm-hmm. And then finally, on July 13th, 2017, Becca called law enforcement to file a restraining order against her son, Justin. Interesting. She said that the argument was about the phone bill, because remember, she had dropped him from the Mm -hmm. plan. But that had occurred months prior. I mean, that happened in April. And he's just now figuring out that she, right. he's been dropped in yeah. July. Yeah, she said that's what the argument was about. He said instead that the argument was because he was accusing her of involvement Ooh. in his dad's death because of the rumors that he had heard that she and another man were involved. So mm. many people outside of the situation, they felt like, you know, a restraining order was kind of an extreme reaction if the fight was really over a cell phone bill. Yeah. So what was it really about then? Exactly. To play devil's advocate, Becca has not been named a suspect in the case. There are some of those moves she could have made out of grief, out of true financial hardship. She definitely could not have carried out anything against Mike alone. Because in my mind, given the size difference of the two, there's Mm -hmm. no way she could. And further, law enforcement were adamant that Becca passed the other part of the polygraph exam, other than the questions about the extramarital affairs, which is why they have ruled her out as a suspect. You know, I don't understand how passing a polygraph rules you out as a suspect, but failing one does not make you a suspect. I know. It is bizarre. Now, before I ask for your opinion, I will say that at least one of our theories, the staging a death to start a new life, can now be ruled out since Michael Chambers' remains were discovered just recently on November 30th, 2022. So only about, what, seven months ago? They were discovered, yes, six years after his disappearance. They were discovered by a man hiking in a rural area of Raines County, which is near East Tawakini, 
just off of U.S. Highway 276 and recovered from the scene were skeletal remains and a bicycle Mm -hmm. that were identified by the University of North Texas Center for Human Remains in Fort Worth as Michael Chambers. The location of the remains was not far from where law enforcement had tracked the final ping of Mike's cell phone. Were we able to tell how he died? No. So, Maggie, what are your thoughts? I mean, the body at the discovery at the end just kind of throws a little bit of a wrench in things because I really want to know... I mean, I feel like if he'd been hit in the head, we would see that on a skull. Mm-hmm. If he shot himself or something, we would mm-hmm. see that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he didn't drown himself. Right. I don't know what my final thoughts are, but I need somebody to tell me what happened to Michael Chambers because I'm invested. Mm-hmm. I know. As the wife of a firefighter, I have faced many fears, but none of the fears I've faced can come close to that experienced by the family and loved ones of the missing and the murdered. There's the fear of never finding the missing, coupled with the fear of finding them, only to feel a different kind of loss with their passing. There's the fear of never having answers, paired with the fear of not knowing whether answers will even dull the pain. My heart aches with their anguish at each and every turn. It's the invisible burden we should all bear when we hear these cases, ones that prompt us to action, to advocacy, to easing their loneliness at least ever so slightly by knowing someone else cares. Hunt County Sheriff Terry Jones told a staff reporter from NBC Dallas-Fort Worth, quote, I ask for the continued prayers for the Chambers family. Mr. Chambers' family have waited for answers for a long time, and I hope this brings some closure to the Chambers' family. This remains an open investigation, and my office will continue to diligently investigate this case, end quote. Now it's up to us sleuth hounds to do our due diligence in sharing the case as well. Anyone with credible information on Chambers' disappearance is asked to call the Hunt County Sheriff's Office at 903-453-6838 or text to submit online an anonymous tip to Hunt County Crime Stoppers at 903-453-6838. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.
It's Love Notes with Maggie and Allison. Whoop, whoop. We have lots of love going out to both Crime With My Coffee and to Teachers Talk Crime, both amazing podcasts who gave us a shout out on social media this week. And we adore both of those pods. So if you haven't checked them out, you should. Yes, you should. Because they're pretty great. They are awesome. And we also want to send some love out to our Patreon swag box recipients. Mm-hmm. Those who joined at the $12, $15, or $20 a month levels. We have loved seeing you yeah, in your new shirts. Yes, that you got this last round of swag. And you look amazing. And if you want to be in the next round of swag because you just found out they're getting, they got shirts and you're very sad that you missed out, (laughs) maybe you just want some bonus content, maybe you just want to support the show, you can do all of those things if you head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cases. There's a link in the show notes and you can join today. Yes, and to close, we have a favor to ask. We are again nominated for the Podcast Awards and would be thrilled if you would take just a minute out of your day to go to the link Mm -hmm. in our show notes or the ones that we post on our social media to vote for us because a lot of the big name podcasters, they obviously get a lot of votes. They've got a lot of listeners, but we want to show everybody that heart and compassion passion, concern, and advocacy mean more than money. So we would love for you to vote for us and our show just to kind of show those bigger shows that a small indie podcasts, we can make a difference. And we'll love you all even more if you do vote for us. That would be amazing. It would be amazing. I would die. (laughs) and with that all of our love is going out to each and every one of you until next week sleuth hounds everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 